Today's scripture is Acts 3, 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple in the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And the man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold to give, but what I do have to give, I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by his right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your living word and for this time for us to fellowship together. Please prepare our hearts as we listen to Rick and as you speak through him, help our hearts to leave changed and impacted. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and uh, open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 3. So we're just going to continue working our way through the, the first portion of uh, this book of the Bible. And what we're doing is that we're actually going to break this up in a few sections. So for the last several weeks, we focused on a specific theme together. And it is actually pretty remarkable how often that theme together shows up in just the first two chapters of the book of Acts. They're, God's people are together. They're devoted to one another. And you see this over and over and over again there. It's all about togetherness. And ultimately, that's really what church is about. Church is family. It's about covenant community. God's people together in the trenches together doing life with one another. So you see that over and over in the first uh, few chapters there. I will say this, that uh, if you haven't been around and you've missed any of the messages over the last few weeks on this particular topic, I'd invite you to our website. We podcast all our messages on there. You go to anthem-church.org slash resources slash messages, and there you go. You can listen to it there and catch up. And the reason I would ask for you to do that is that if we're going to be the church that impacts this community for the good— and if we're going to be a church, the church that God desires us to be, and if we're going to fill anger in the world with love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus, we got to be devoted to each other. I mean, that's, how, that's one of the reasons that early church was able to do the magnificent work they were, they were capable of doing, that they actually did do, was because they were devoted to one another. So I would ask for you to lean into that, that theme that happens not just in Acts, but throughout the New Testament. And today we're shifting gears a little bit. We're going we're gonna to start looking at a new theme that starts popping up now, starting in Acts chapter 3 and for the next few chapters, and that is the name. The name, the early church started a movement that not only changed the world, but that continues to change the world because everything that they did was in the name of Jesus. What they did was in the name of Jesus. So if you think about it, everything that we do is in someone's name, right? You do everything you do, it's in someone's name. Like you do stuff for yourself, that's, you're doing it, you're doing that stuff for you. You're doing it in your name. Well, when you're at work 
and you, whatever task you're doing for your employer, guess what? You're doing it in the name of your employer. We have a church treasurer. When she writes a check to pay a church bill, she's doing it in the name of Anthem Church. When our president, when our ambassadors, when they meet with global leaders, they're doing it in the name of of our country, of the United States of America. So we all do everything in someone's name. What does that mean, to actually do something in someone's name? It actually means to represent them, that we represent a specific individual. We're their proxy. In a way, we're like an attorney working on their behalf. To, to do something in someone's name is to have the bestowed privilege of speaking on someone's behalf. It is having the authority to act on their behalf. It's being empowered to say and do, speak in their, in their representation on their behalf. And we do need to consider what it is that, what name it is that we're doing things. And as, as we go through this over the next few weeks, I would ask for you to challenge yourself. Whose name am I speaking in? At work, when I'm serving, when I'm doing what I'm doing, like whose name am I doing that in? Who, whose name do I have my actual walking and living and breathing in? And at the end of the day, what I'm asking is an identity question. Who we ultimately do things for, the name that we do things in, ultimately that's a matter of personal identity. We have to figure out, like, who is it that I identify most closely with? Is it just simply me? Is it just my family? Is it the United States? Like, what is it? Is it my employer? Like, what is it that I fully, mostly identify with? And in our current situation in the United States, we got to be really careful because it is really easy, really, really easy today for us to align ourselves more with political party and political ideology than it is with God and God's word. And people get riled up over this stuff. And people get passionate and emotional and fight. And you can't have Thanksgiving dinner with family because everyone's like, it's more about identity with the political party over issues than it is about, like, am I identifying more with Christ and with Jesus? And in, in today's social culture, we got to be really careful. Because right now, just the tension, especially over the last four, six years or so, what's been going on, like, people will more likely associate along, like, racial or ethnic lines than they will with God and God's people. And I'm pretty sure that the Bible says that there's no more divide between Jew and Gentile. You know, they, these arbitrary lines that we have drawn amongst ourselves aren't real. They're really a figment of our imagination. We've created them just to divide ourselves. And there's really only one race. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. There's only one race, and it's called the human race. There are multiple races. We all come from the same mommy and daddy back in the day. Right? So we're all one, and in God's eyes, all created in his image. And by the grace of God, we're now a new people, regardless of where we come from. We're all one people. But, man, today we'll, we'll divide up around some other issues and lines that don't matter. So where's my identity? Is it where I'm from? Is it race, ethnicity, nationality, creed, or is it Jesus and God's people. So we got to watch that. Uh, as followers of Christ, we've been given this new identity, this brand new life. And we're called to like pursue Christ and do things differently in every way. We've been given this new life. We're not only saved by the name of Jesus, we're called to live in the name of Jesus. And that's important. You got to follow that up. 
Because we need to call on the name of Christ. We're saved by the name of Jesus, but you've got to live in it. You've got to live in the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is our love and Lord. He's our gracious Savior. He's all-powerful creator. He's the one who created everything that exists, and he rules today without rival. This is who Christ is, sovereign Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. And to him belongs all glory and all honor, all authority, all wealth, all wisdom, all glory belongs to Jesus. And he invites each and every one of us to live in his name. And I, I would ask for you to like pause, if, if it's even now or sometime this week and pause, that should fry your noodle. That should completely overwhelm your soul. That the God of the universe is asking you to be his ambassador on planet Earth. That he's asking you, would you speak on my behalf? Would you act on my behalf? That's amazing. That's an amazing thought that God would ask such a thing to us. And not only that, but the things that we actually want in our lives, the, the heart of it, at the depths of your heart, the love, the joy, the peace, the, the, the hope, that your heart longs for is all found in living in the name of Jesus. He provides it in abundance. He offers it to all freely. He doesn't want us to be captive or in prison. So we experience that in Christ. So as we go here through the next few weeks, ask yourself, who is it that I really identify with? Who is it that I'm really representing each and every day? In whose name am I living and breathing? And just push yourself to answer those questions. So uh, real quick, let's just get into this text. It is just such a good story. And I, I, I hope you walk out of here excited and changed over what is captured here in God's word. So there in verse 1, it says that Peter and John, they go up to the temple. And it says that they go up to the temple at the ninth hour, which happens to be 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And the reason they go to the temple is because it's the hour of prayer, the hour of power, 3 p.m. So show up. Be sure that you're there. So they show up at this point. And back in the day, there were two formal times of prayer at the temple. One was in the morning. One was in the afternoon. So Peter and John, knowing that there's going to be a bunch of people gathered at the temple, go where? To the temple. Knowing there could be people there, they go to where people are going to be. Why? Because they know that ultimately everyone's hope is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That the reason those people are going to that temple to pray is because they're looking for something. And guess what? They have the message. They have the answer. They have the hope that it is that those people are looking for. So they're going to where people are to offer the very hope that those people are looking for. They just don't happen to know where to look for it. So they're going there. What this means is that they're living out their identity. They're living out their commission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. This is an identity question. It's not just a mission thing, like something I do. This is who they are. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not simply what we do. It's who we are. It's embedded into us when we give our life to Jesus. So that's what they're doing. They're owning their identity in Christ and going out to represent Christ as his followers. They go to where the people are. So if we are followers of Jesus, we need to follow the example of Peter and John and go to where Peter are, or Peter, go where the people are. You know, it's very easy for us. If you're around church much, and if you're uh, in church for 
any amount of time, all of a sudden you found you're, you're going to find yourself very much cocooned. It's what happens. It is our, our tendency that once we kind of get into church life, all of a sudden all we have are churchy friends. And all we have are these kind of Christian friends. And we get very hunkered and bunkered into this Christian bubble. And clearly, we should be devoted to one another. That is right, and it's good, and it's biblical. There is a, a primacy to the nature of the relationship that we're to have with fellow believers, a, a being equally yoked with one another. Well, we're not being unequally yoked with the non-believer, but with believers in covenant relationship. That is right, so that's primary, but not to the point that there are no connections with non-believers, which happens so easily. I mean, Jesus did that. He walked around. Not everyone that he talked to was... I believe you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. So we need to follow the example of Christ and be around those individuals who have not yet placed their faith in Christ. Connecting with them, reaching out to them, building trust, establishing trust, doing all that we can to build that relationship with us. So right now, we got to figure out where the folks are. Where are the people? Where are they? Well, let me tell you, and Andrew, where the people be. They're at Jack Marley Park at the town park, right? They're in your cul-de-sac, they're in your neighborhood, and they're at the food pantry. All right, let me just kind of walk through how, where these people are. In the town park, here's the Marley, like, you guys are familiar, you guys have ever gone and walking at Jack Marley Park? It's really nice, right? It's a good park, it's really cool. So you wanna go there, uh, just, it wasn't too long ago, you had someone in our church, Wendy Hilton, she goes to the park, she's hanging out, and she meets this lady, Sandra Parker. They build a rapport, build a relationship, they're talking. Next thing you know, Sandra Parker is attending our church and she gets baptized. Because she's at the park, just hanging out, right? That's really good. But for me and Jamie, much of the reason that we actually want our kids involved in town uh, rec sports at the park is because it gives us an opportunity to get outside of our Christian bubble. The reason that I coach soccer in the fall is for that explicit purpose. Yeah, yeah, the kids are cute, and the four or five-year-olds, yeah, it's nice, and it's funny to laugh at playing soccer. And yeah, I'm trying to be a blessing because they want to play. That's cool. I'll teach them a little bit. All right. But one of the main reasons is because there's adults that I will interact with that I normally would never interact with or intersect with. And it's just a wonderful opportunity. So I would say go to the park. Go there. Walk around the pond. Take your kids to play at the playground. Kids are the best evangelistic tool on the planet. They'll go and start up a conversation with anyone. They'll force you to have a conversation with that, with that family or that couple. Or someone will walk up, aren't they cute? Hook! All right, well, let me tell you about Jesus if you think that they're cute. Not really. I'm not going to browbeat anyone with Jesus. I mean, sometimes it doesn't go anywhere. You know what I mean. We've actually done it a few times where we'll go on a Saturday as a church. And we'll go and have the kids play. And a few of us will take a wagon and fill up coolers with water. And we'll walk around the park and hand out water. And it gives us an opportunity. It's like we're connecting. We're not Bible thumping. We're not saying, you're going to hell. Nothing like that. Say, hey, man, this is just a gift from the church. Do you have a church? Where do you go? What's your story? Where are you from? And you just never know how God is going to use the opportunities. But the thing is, you've got to get out in front of people and go out there. So take advantage of it. Look for opportunities. Uh, the second thing is, we know, sure enough, that people are in our cul-de-sac. They're in our neighborhoods. That's where, that's where everyone is. So just in the life of our church. A few years ago, you have Emily and Caleb Riggs. They reach out to their neighbors. 
Matt and Jennifer Payne. Next thing you know, Matt and Jennifer Payne are part of the church. Both of them got baptized. Why? Because a family connected with the family right next door. So then Jennifer Payne, alongside with my Jamie, alongside with Kristen Stiltner, because we all live in the same neighborhood, they're connecting with Crystal Hadley. And so this took a few years, connecting, building friends, building rapport, talking to her. Next thing you know, two months ago, Crystal gets baptized, right? She accepted Jesus within the last year. Like, this is life-on-life ministry. Like, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is like life. Witnesses living for the glory of Jesus everywhere that we are. So I would ask, do you even know your neighbors? I'm pretty sure Jesus said, love your neighbor. Well, how can we love them if we don't know them? Don't be this person. Because there are some people that are like this. I'm sure there's no one in here, right? But you've got it dialed in. You know, okay, you're driving, and once you hit 75 feet from your driveway, if you're going 3.3 miles per hour, if you hit your, your garage door opener, man, you can, you can barely clear, and you, finally, and you get your car in just in time, and before you've even come to a stop, you've hit it closed, and it shuts behind you, and you bunker yourself in for the rest of the night, and no neighbor even knows you're even there, let alone know you or know your name. Four years ago, me and Jamie move into our neighborhood. We meet our neighbors, Steve and Amy. One of the dearest friends that I have, we have what we call garage summits now, where we just hang out in his garage and, and we just chat for a while. And to see Steve grow over the last four years, it's good stuff. Yesterday, just out of nowhere, they, I mean, in the afternoon, say, hey, we're going to grill some hamburgers and bring the kids over. And that's a blessing to me and Jamie, for sure. But, I mean, it's just life on life. Get to know the people that are around you. And the other thing is the pantry, the food pantry. What an incredible opportunity that God has brought the Andrew Area Food Pantry to now operate from underneath our building on our roof. They feed over 900 people every month. Do you know the amount of traffic that's coming through here Tuesday and Thursday mornings? People in need. People in need. And so we have Jeff Gray, who's now volunteering on a weekly basis, two or three times a week, helping out, getting to know people. Within the first two weeks of the food pantry being in our building, I stopped by one day, struck up a conversation with a lady. That afternoon, I'm meeting with her and her husband. That, that guy accepted Jesus. Like he became a follower of Christ that afternoon. What an opportunity God has given to us. Miss Linda Ridgeway, for those of you who know her, been coming to our church for a little over a year. I met her at the food pantry a little over a year ago. Struck up a conversation with her. And now, folks, I can't imagine our church without her. She's been here ever since. And a part in helping out. And recently, she's had pneumonia. She's been hospitalized. Finally came home. And so many people in our family are taking meals over to her and helping her vacuum and sitting down and like taking her a smoothie and drinking smoothie with her because she likes smoothies, right? And she told me yesterday, we were talking on the phone, she says, Rick, I have never experienced this in my life. I've been in church, in so many different churches most of my life, and I've never experienced this where people actually love on each other. Folks, this is, this is what it means to be devoted, but that doesn't happen unless we are with each other and with people and, draw, and drawing people into our community by being around them. What a wonderful privilege. So this is my hope. This is my desire. Call it vision, whatever you want to. I want to create, establish a care team 
that is here on Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings that will put together a modest continental breakfast and let the people come in, get out of the weather, out of the heat, out of the cold, wherever it may be, sit down, enjoy a meal, get to know them. Can we pray for you? Maybe they'll let us pray for them. Great. Maybe a devotion or a Bible study. But actually have some ministry where we're interacting with individuals. Hundreds, hundreds are coming to our building. We don't even have to go anywhere for that. What an absolutely wonderful opportunity. So living in the name of Jesus means sharing Jesus. And you cannot do that unless you be where the people be. So at work, at school, at play, in your neighborhood, wherever you may be, be intentional. Be graciously aggressive. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. In a nice, loving, gracious, Jesus-filled way. But I'm just meaning be intentional. Be thoughtful. Look for opportunities. Look for common ground. Something to start a conversation because you just never know how God's going to use it. So give God an opportunity to use you to share the greatest message the world has ever known. And maybe, just maybe, you'll have the opportunity to lead that individual into the grace of God, and there is nothing better. But we keep moving down this story. Verse 2. Peter and John go to the temple, and verse 2 tells us that there's a man sitting by the gate who cannot walk. The man's been lame since birth. We know from chapter 4, verse 22, that the man is 40 years old or a little over 40 years old. So for over 40 years, he can't walk the entire duration of his life. And, and you can imagine that this is a desperate situation to, to be in each and every day. Someone has to physically pick him up, take him to the temple so that he can beg for money. And this is a time where there is no government welfare where there's no health care programs and especially nothing with, that allows pre-existing conditions or anything like that. It is a desperate, desperate situation. He's completely at the mercy of the generosity of other people. And in verse 3, it says that he looks at Peter and John and he asks for money, which is what you would expect. Like, this is all he knows. This is, this is life for the man. He's incapable of going anywhere on his own, incapable of doing anything on his own. He's at the mercy of these people, so he's, he's asking and begging for money. Question, have you ever been that desperate? So desperate that you needed someone to physically pick you up, carry you somewhere, and then get sat down all day long to beg for a handout in order to have enough to eat. Have you ever been that helpless? We'll come back to that question in just a little bit. The man asks for money, and then look at how Peter and John respond to him in verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. He directed both of them. Peter and John directed her gaze at the man, right? This is such an important principle for us to, to embrace. Living in the name of Jesus means setting our gaze upon the needy. Living in the name of Jesus means setting our gaze upon the needy. How easy is it to see a need and look away? It's extremely easy, isn't it? And we almost prefer to. I would say we prefer to look away from the needy, to away from the need. Why? 
Well, the thing is that if I see a person that is in need, then if I don't look away fast enough, I might start feeling pity. And I might start feeling compassion. And if I start feeling enough compassion, two things are going to happen. Either I'm going to feel guilty for not doing something, or if I feel enough compassion, then I'm going to have to do something to help. And if I do something to help, then that means that what my plans were for the day had been squadooshed. That means that the dollar I was going to use at Sunny Skies, guess what? I don't get to use it at Sunny Skies because I'm going to try to help somebody. See, that's the problem with looking at a need. I feel compelled then to do something, and if I feel compelled, I'm going to be inconvenienced to help out. See, the reason we look away is just simply out of selfishness. It is this instinct that we have, this human instinct, that I'm going to turn away because if I don't, I'm going to have to do something, and I really don't want to. So we look away. So we need to replace our selfishness with selflessness. Instead of looking away, we actually need to set our direction, our attention upon those who need help. And here's the thing. You never know. You may be the only person around to help them out. You may be the very one that God is tapping on the shoulder to meet that specific need. And while, yes, I would love to, be, to have a crew around me to help me out with whatever that is, sometimes that's not the case. And sometimes it is for us to carry that situation individually because God is calling us to help that person who is in need. But you never know. You just never know if you're the only one there. So don't look away. Proverbs 28 verse 27 says, Whoever gives to the poor will not want Whoever gives will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Listen, I don't want a curse, let alone many a curse. What does that mean? Like, many a curse just sounds really bad. Why didn't they just say many curses? But no, many a curse. I think that makes it sound a lot worse. I don't want many a curse. What I want is many a blessing. That sounds a lot better. And we know that the way to blessing is through blessing. Do you understand that this is a scriptural principle? That God actually does give to givers. God is open-handed with those who are open-handed. God is, gives more to those who are faithful with the little. I am not peddling the prosperity gospel, mind you. I'm not saying that if you help someone in need with lunch, that you're going to get home and there's going to be a brand new BMW sitting in the driveway. Because God don't work that way. That is not the promise that God makes. What God says is, if you will help people out, I will definitely supply your need. God promises to be our provider. He promises to give us what we need each and every day. And on top of that, the real blessing of being a giver is that then the joy and the hope and the peace that we so desperately long for becomes more, more available or more abundant. It, be, it gets more and more tattooed upon our hearts. That's the promise that God makes. Give, and you will live in freedom. You will live in the freedom that Christ offers, that, that life of love and joy and hope and peace. But we can't live in freedom if we're imprisoned by Almighty Dollar, right? How can that be? I can't be free. If the, the currency owns me. Now, the reason that people hold on tightly to money, it's not because you have a strong grip. The reason you hold on tightly to money is because the money's got a, hold tight, a tight hold on you. It actually works the other way around. 
I don't want to be controlled by money. So we need to be loose with it. I want to be free in Christ and not given over simply to the love of almighty dollar. And the reason we should give is really simple. It's because God is a giver. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So here's the story of the gospel. Jesus Christ, God Almighty in heaven, leaves the riches of glory. The warmth of glory. He comes into this cold, dark, dreary, evil world. He takes on flesh. He goes to a cross. And upon that cross, your sin and my sin were bestowed upon his shoulders. Were placed upon his shoulders. He became poor. He took on our entire poverty, our moral poverty. He took it upon himself. And on that cross there, God meted out judgment upon him. And he paid the price for our sin. And in so doing, we are then freed from that poverty. He removed it from us, and now instead, he closes us with the righteousness of his glory. We are rich in Christ because of what Jesus did, because he emptied himself and became poor. So because of that, anyone now who believes in Christ, we're forgiven of our sin, we're adopted into God's family, and we become co-heirs with Christ to the riches of his glory. And here's the catch there's actually a connection between gratitude and generosity. It is those who are grateful for the grace of God who are generous toward those in need. It really is a sign of our hearts. If I care more just about me and my selfishness and my stuff and my needs and being held on and imprisoned by the dollar, then it may actually reveal that I'm not grateful at all for Jesus did for me on the cross. It may mean that though he died and his body was broken and uh, blood was shed, I'm really not moved by that. So I would ask for you to evaluate your heart and consider, like, where are you at? Like, how's, how's gratitude measure up versus your generosity? Are you grateful that Jesus gave everything that you may have eternal life, that you may be forgiven? And this really does go beyond money. This goes more beyond, you know, giving a handout to someone or helping someone in need or benevolence ministry and all, all that. It includes money, but it, it's not just that. It's offering our time. It's offering a shoulder. It's offering friendship. It's offering talent and skill and expertise and counsel. It's being there for the person, however the need may call for. So living in the name of Jesus means setting our gaze on the needy and helping out. In verse 4, Peter and John, that's what they did. They set their gaze at the man and they say, look at us. In verse 4, and then in verse 5, the man, I, I would assume, gets excited. He gets excited. It actually says he's expecting to get something. He's expecting some money. And I'm, I'm guessing he's probably thinking to himself, well, now I can eat today. These guys are going to help me out. They're gonna, I'm going to get to eat today. But then in verse 6, Peter says, I have not silver and gold. Wah, wah, wah. Dun -dun -dun -dun. Like all the prices right sound sound effects there. Like, well, wh why are you, why are you talking to me? Why are you getting my attention if you don't have money? Because I need straight cash, homie. 
I mean, I need some straight cash up in here. And if you don't have cash, you're not helping me. But Peter offers him something profoundly and infinitely better. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says to him, But what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The man thought he was asking for his greatest need, and he got something profoundly better. No longer would anyone need to pick him up carry him anywhere instantly just like that miraculously he didn't just stand up my man jumped up is what the scriptures say instantly guys ever been on a farm grew up on a farm been on a farm it's in a farm show (laughs) seen wildlife mutual of omaha specials or whatever documentary about, you know, the Serengeti. You've seen footage, at the very least, of an animal being born, right? It's actually amazing that they're able to walk as fast as they are able to, but still, when they first come out, can they walk? Are they, do they come out galloping? Not quite. Not quite. Legs all wobbly, like terrible sense of balance. They're falling down. And soon enough, they'll get up and walk and run and, and gallop and all of that. They do it much faster than we do, don't we? I mean, how long does it take a little human baby to walk? Nine months, 14 months, and when they do, life is over for the parents. (laughs) People post it all the time, so-and-so took their first steps, and I'm not liking that one. I'm like, oh, poor thing, because now that kid is mobile, and life is now more miserable than it was before. But it takes us nine or 12, this guy, over 40 years of age, has never walked a day in his life, and in that moment, stands up. He stands. He's jumping. He's galloping. And for the first time in his life, he actually walks through those gates that he, which he set in front of for how many years? Just an amazing story. Like we, we know that God is the God of miracles. Like This was not conjured up by Peter. This was not man-made. This is the power of God on display, a miraculous display where this guy's life was completely changed. And in that moment, somehow, Peter knew that he was supposed to say to this man, rise and stand and walk. And he does so. So what's Peter doing? He's acting on behalf of Jesus. He's doing it in the name of Jesus upon the authority of Christ. He's speaking the words of Christ to this person who so desperately needs the God of miracles to show up in his life. He receives this brand new life. Isn't that good? Isn't that a good story? All right. A quick application. I want us to think about our hopes and our expectations. In this story, this man, when he asked, when he had an opportunity to ask for something, what did he ask for? A little handout, right? A little bit of cash in verse, in verse 5. He had small expectations. He had very small expectations. He had accepted the life that he had received. 
He had fully embraced it. He was used to the condition of his life. It was normal. It's just the way it is. And so much so that he's not looking for improvement. He's not looking for his life to get any better or to change. So he's just asking for little things. See, when your expectations are small, when your hopes are small, you ask for small things. His expectations are small. So he's asking for a little, a little something, just enough to get him through the day. And it's so sad that so many of us, we live the same way. We've, we've accepted our addiction. We've accepted our depression. It's just normal. Like we, we've gotten used to the chronic fear and the constant worry. We're imprisoned by our anger and we're imprisoned by our bitterness, imprisoned by our jealousy, imprisoned by our resentment. But that's just the way it is. And it's been like that for a long time. It's my lukewarm bath. Like it starts feeling comfortable. It's like an old pair of tennis shoes. And so we, we walk in this prison and it's just normal. And when it becomes normal, when that's our perspective, you know what? We don't ask God for anything more than to just get us through the day. When that's our perspective, we're like beggars coming to God. Can I just have just, just enough to survive today? We just ask God for a little bit of grace. Here's how many of us come to God every day. Just our, our hands cupped, just like this. God, can I just have just enough? Just enough for today. And you know the problem with that? It's that the scriptures clearly tell us that God's grace is more than sufficient and more than abundant and overflowing. Do not insult God by coming up to him and saying, just give me just a little bit. Bring dump trucks, empty dump trucks to the throne of grace and say, God, give me everything that I need and then some. Not just enough for my daily life, but to actually change my life, to transform my life enough that it does something profoundly in me. I don't want to be in prison anymore. Free me. Give me all the grace, all the grace, which is inexhaustible, all the grace to break me free from these chains that have bound me. Do not accept the darkness. Don't accept the depression. It is not normal and it's not meant to be. Do not sell God short. And I know that some of you, you've gone through some really harsh stuff in your life. You may be facing some serious issues today. You may be walking around with some deep, deep wounds from something in your past. Don't sell God short. Don't sell him short. Ephesians 3.20 tells us now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He is the God of miracles. He can change everything. He can move mountains. He created the universe. He knit you in your mother's womb. There is nothing outside the capacity of God. He can bring full healing to your body, to your mind, to your heart, to your marriage, to your soul. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can do that? Because I would ask that you not accept the brokenness just as the way it is. 
It's selling God short. God loves you profoundly. And if you doubt that, you look to the cross of Jesus. That proves just how much God, in fact, does love you. That he would send his son and have him crushed upon that cross for your sake. And God is all-powerful, and he can do all things. He's the giver of abundant life, so don't sell him short. God can restore every aspect of your life, everything. Now, he may not restore everything, because this side of heaven, this side of the grave, there are things that we will have to carry. There are the proverbial thorns in the side that God sometimes, according to his sovereign wisdom, just would have us to walk in. Just because it keeps us humble and dependent upon him. But not knowing what it is that God wants me to live with, I would ask that you would live in expectation of what God can do. Here's how you pray. God, I don't know what you're going to do, but I sure enough know what you can do. Expectation, anticipation, and hope. That he is the God of miracles, that he can do anything. And then you could be like this person in this story that just like that, maybe it's not your ankles or your feet, but your soul and your heart and your strength and your mind are strengthened and you're leaping and you're jumping and praising God. We need to pray like the, the words of Psalm 40, verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy like the lame man. You know, I asked earlier, have you ever been as desperate as that man? And I'd say that every single one of us in this room, yes. Spiritually speaking, we've been no better and in no different a position. So as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Pray with anticipation. Pray with expectation, with faith and with hope. Just want to close real quick was this his final thought the word east e-a-s-t extremely profound word in scripture full of theological meaning genesis chapter 2 adam and eve sin in genesis chapter 3 they're escorted east out of the garden of eden in the very next chapter of the bible Cain murders his brother Abel, and he's cursed. And it tells us in that story that he then moves east away from the presence of God. And a few chapters later, Lot separates his herd from Abraham, and he goes east towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what you see in Scripture is this pattern that, that God is using symbolically to say that this movement east is really the legacy of humanity. We're always moving east, meaning moving further away from God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we're moving east, 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 further from God, further away from God. Not knowing him, not worshiping him, not obeying him, east, further, further, further away from God. But God's desire is to draw us back, to bring us back to himself. So he starts this plan in the Old Testament. One of the, one of the parts of the plan is he tells his people to build what is a tabernacle, a fancy, mobile, ornate, beautiful tent, this large tent that they would uh, put down together and then erect back up. And God gave them specific details for what the materials are and how to, how to make it, how big, etc. And guess what? Every time they were to put the tabernacle up, guess which way the entrance pointed? East. And later, when they actually built the temple, guess which way the gate faced? 
east. Why? That symbolically shows God aimed east where we are. Where we are, because we're all out east, and the doors open saying, come back. Come back. The beautiful gate where this lame man sat year after year, guess which wall that was on? The east wall. The beautiful gate was one of the eastern gates. Year after year, this man sat there at the gate, and it was there. He's healed. He rises up, and he enters and begins to worship God. And so today, Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the beautiful gate. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the opening. He's the door by which we enter into a relationship with God Almighty. So I would ask, are, are, have you walked through the gate have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Maybe you're here this morning and you're realizing, you're recognizing, I've been laying lame at the gate year after year, just asking for little handouts. I want Jesus to heal me. I want to walk through the gate. I want to be forgiven of all my sin. I want to enter into a relationship with God. I want my eternal destiny to be secure. If that is you this morning, rise up, take him by the hand, accept him as Lord and Savior. Have you done that? Are you here today and you've been walking in this prison, in this darkness, asking God for meager handouts when God can offer so much more? Well, maybe today is the day you ask God to break you free of addiction or darkness or brokenness or past wound or a sin that has hold of your heart. Let him lift you and raise you up. And for all of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to take the example of Peter and John. We need to be where the people be. We're saved by the name of Jesus in order to live in the name of Jesus, for our identity to be found in him and him alone, for us to represent him on this planet, for us to set our gaze upon those who are needy and be used by God in their lives to help them, to bless them, and by God's grace to lead them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, Whose name are you living in? Whose name are you living in? So I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes and just to spend 30 seconds quietly in the privacy of your own heart reflecting upon what God's word says and what God has maybe spoken to your personal heart today. And I would ask, if you're here and you've never confessed your sin to God and embraced his grace, call out to him. Or maybe there's something else God is laying on your heart. There's some needs that you've been neglecting with a, a friend or family member that God wants you to set your gaze on. Or maybe your schedule that God's asking you to share. He's asking you to represent him in a very specific way. What is that?
Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word and the gift of your Son for grace and mercy and patience. Thank you that you're the God of second chances. You do not leave us wandering or broken or hopeless, Lord, but you reach down. You reach down to take us by the hand that we may walk, that we may walk in newness of life. Lord, we did not settle for an existence laying lame at the gate, but we can enter, we can enter into your presence. So I pray now, Lord, for all of us gathered under this roof, that that would be our story. All of us having been healed by your power and comforted by your love. For all of us to know the amazing grace of Christ and that sacrifice on the cross. To know that our eternity is secure and that you're even with us now. And to know that whatever problems we may face, that God, you're better than all of that. You're stronger than all of that. And that you, Lord, are in fact the God of miracles. You are the God of the impossible. So Lord, yes, we are desperate. We're desperate for you in every way, every moment of every day. In Jesus' name.